welcome back to Not Too Busy to Write. I'm Penny Windsor, author and book coach. Today, I'm speaking with author Marisa Bate about her book, Wild Hope. Marisa is a freelance journalist and women's rights advocate who built a name as a feminist journalist at the award-winning website, The Pool. Marisa writes for The Guardian, The Telegraph, Harper's Bazaar, Stylist, Vogue, and many more. Wild Hope follows two journeys across the Midwest of America, almost 50 years apart, Taken one taken by Marisa's mother in the early 1970s and the other by Marisa in 2021. It is part memoir, part reportage, and part social history, looking at the changing landscape of women's rights in America. It's also a deeply personal book and a love letter to her own mother, a single working parent. Marisa talks about just how much hope there is to be found in dark times, keeping a long-term perspective, and the challenges of writing your own story when it's so intertwined with the stories of others. Wild Hope is absolutely magnificent, and it is out now. You can also read Marisa's wonderful substack, Writing About Women, and I'll pop the link in the show notes. Not Too Busy to Write is also now on substack, so if you would love to support the podcast, you can do so there. The newsletter is weekly, and there will be much more to come in 2024. Enjoy the episode. Marisa, thank you so much for being with me today. It's really exciting to be here. Thank you. Um, let's talk about your book, Wild Hope. It it tells the story of two different journeys almost 50 years apart. One of them was by your mother um, in the early 70s. It was a time in America of, of um, expanding women's rights. It was an exciting time for her. She just graduated from university, the first in her family. And then you took that similar journey again, Greyhound buses across the mis- Midwest of America in 2021 at a very different time, a time of, of contracting hum, uh, women's rights. Um, Roe versus Wade was about to collapse when you did the journey. The, it was about finding a sense of hope, um, a hope that you imagined that your mother had in the early 70s. I guess I want to start with a bit of a big one. Did Do you feel like you found that hope on that journey? I found so much hope. Um, not exclusively hope, mm. you know, either. I think it's really important to say that hope doesn't exist in isolation. You can find a whole spring of hope and still see storm clouds ahead. Mm. Um, But that doesn't undermine the hope, nor does it undermine the seriousness of what might be coming down the line. But absolutely, I found hope. Mm. Um, And I found hope in the places, I found the most hope in the places I least expected to find it. Mm. So the more Republican state I was in, a red state, the more restrictive the laws were, uh, the kind of bigger the the bigger kind of the anti-abortion community was where I was. That when I met pro-abortion advocates there or women's rights advocates there, they gave me so much hope mm. because find these individuals to meet all these incredible women who stay in these communities that um, promote things they don't believe in, but they stay to try and create real change. Mm. I mean, it's all kind of frontline, coalface, you know, I don't give up on my community because America's amazing for countless reasons. But one is that you could move to so many great cities. You know, you've got this choice of movement. Mm. I was just amazed that these women were refusing to leave yeah they weren't you know it was a case of I'm not giving up on my community I'm staying here and I'm doing the work to try and improve things for other people in my community and so I think you know it was the, the hope was these sort of little kind of it was like kind of unturning a stone and then all this light coming out from the earth and that would be this kind of little pocket of of people who were sort of quietly but relentlessly either working within a women's health clinic or were in the legal profession or were a a grassroots kind of organization um or elected officials um you know they they were in all different fields but they were sort of chip chip chipping away and that's where the hope was because Mm. I, I was sort of like wow if if you're here doing this work, there is a chance. Mm. And actually, a lot of that feeling has been validated in the last week with the um, the US off elections that, that were last week. And we saw in a collection of 
quite Republican or swing states, big kind of turnout for pro-abortion legislation. Ohio, where I actually visited, they've just Mm. shrined abortion in their constitution. Now, Ohio, when I was planning to go out there, had a bill that wanted to re-implant kind of fetuses that you know, we are very sadly, we're not going to make it. They wanted to legislate unscientific, terrible, terrible things to with this very odd anti-abortion agenda. So that that's the same state. And so actually what you realize is that you can go to these states and you can see kind of this handful of people and think, God, you're really up against it. You know, you're up against um your opponents have way more money than you. Mm. Um, but actually with the right kind of organization and the right kind of mobilization, change can happen. Mm. And so, so seeing that now is, is really the kind of, um, realization of what the women I met doing, you know, Mm. and kind of blind faith, like, yes, it all looks really, 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 really terrible, but we don't give up. Yeah. And I think the thing that I found particularly incredible about reading it is that this idea of action, that activism isn't just protesting, um, although protest has its place and it's important, activism is actually action. And you were speaking to people who were incredibly active in their communities, many of them at grassroots level, like you say, pushing against a huge tide of kind of wealth and also majority thinking in a lot of those places. Um and it had it was really interesting reading it again that that reiteration especially with everything else that's going on in the world at the moment that um that action actual action is so 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 vital to any cause absolutely I, it, and i think you know a lot of the older women i spoke to were very cautious and sort of warning in their tone around confusing what action is mm. with an online world and generation and action is is a verb you know you do it but you also actually needs a plan mm. it needs a strategy you need to have a goal and i think you know there's there's obviously kind of complete awe for when we look back in history when there's when action has achieved big things you look at civil rights movement and you look at the suffragettes. But I think what I took a lot of um, comfort from, from the women I met, was that action can be small mm. and it's valid. And so actually that kind of, I was constantly kind of having these conversations and then going back to my hotel room and thinking, shit, what, what have I done? Mm. Where is my action? And, and you know, this kind of, the what I'm kind of meeting all these women working in different fields across the country, the size of America. And obviously I've met like a fraction of the women who are doing this kind of work. And you're like, this is what, this is how you create an avalanche, but you have to have all these little pieces to have the avalanche, you know? And so while individually you might think that kind of small act in your community is meaningless, is actually essential to create this bigger push. Um, you know, and I think, you know, there is a, such a direct link between hope and action. Mm. You, know, you have to believe. And I talk about the idea of faith and what, you know, uh, what you're believing in, but you have to believe that your action will do something. And, you know, this phrase that I came across about kind of the hard work of hope and it, the belief isn't a kind of fairy tale. The belief isn't like, you know, well, this will solve it and we'll all be fine. But the belief is in the the action is worth it. You know, there's value in the action. And even if the action doesn't produce the result this month, this year, in the next five years, there is value. And the hope is kind of what drives you to keep doing the action. Mm. So I saw this kind of, you know, there was not one. The only woman I interviewed who was done with hope with hope was a younger woman. And that was very interesting. That's interesting, yeah. You'd expect the older women to be more cynical. And there's, you know, in the conclusion, I kind of talk a lot around the word hope and some of its connotations can feel a bit fluffy. Um, And by the end of my trip, hope is this gritty, tough thing. Because if you still have hope when you live in a community that's trying to take away every single rights of certain demographics in that community, like to, to keep having that hope, that is, to me, that's tough. 
but the 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 younger women i think and i think that's partly um contextual and circumstance you know like the housing crash uh the pandemic you know there's just been so many things for a certain age group that they have had to endure um but i also think perhaps there is a there is a there can be a thing when you're slightly younger that the frustration you haven't had the experience to know that those feelings of will pass. Yeah, there isn't the same perspective of having been through a variety of really, really massive setbacks yet, and then seen it comes come around again. Yeah. 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 It was really, I really loved reading about the older women that you spoke to to see how they were all like, you know what, we've been here before, we'll do it again. But also in some cases, some women were saying, we haven't backslid 100% yet, so let's not give up hope yes. because things yes. were actually worse. Yes. And <laughs> Even I though they feel terrible now, they were worse and it is frightening to backstep. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's not hopeless, yeah. They all put a, as you say, a perspective of actually, well, you compare this with my mother's generation or you compare this with 30 years ago or you compare this when I first started working. And I think that was so interesting that actually the older the women I spoke to, the more optimistic their lens was. Mm. Interestingly, I guess the one caveat I would say to that is I think I was in there out there at such an interesting time because every yeah. sick had just happened. Uh, the insurrection at the Capitol in Washington, and that had frightened people. People, uh, you know, looked frightened by it, truly. Mm. And it was something extraordinary. It was something, you know. um, So I think that was very interesting to see. But essentially, I think you're right. And with that broad kind of calmness, like we've been here, Mm. And we survived uh, and we all find a way forward, but we've got to do these things in order to do that. Whereas with some of the younger activists who are so passionate and so furious and so outraged and so heartbroken, there isn't that reference point. And there is just that kind of bewilderment of, is this the world? Um which is legitimate, but I actually found, you know, I kind of would have, you could have pushed back and said, well, actually your actions, you're still doing all the action. Yes. So. Um, they'll get through. They'll, they'll get they'll through. come to the other side. Yeah. And they'll have a different, <laughs> I, it'd be very interesting, wouldn't it? In sort of 10, 15 years to ask them what they think about hope. Um, uh, and, you know, I think another young, not someone I interviewed in my book, but there's a young uh gun law activist who I've heard speak quite despairingly of hope Mm. and I guess in America there are some things that can feel pretty hopeless it is you know some of the you know the amount of shootings and things like that so I the tide they're pushing against in particularly in the case of guns is overwhelming exactly and so I would never and I would net, you know, the, the, these people have often been in, have been in schools where there have been shootings and have lost friends. So I would never dare to sort of say, oh, you just don't realize that you've got some hope. Yeah. You know, it's not, yeah, not yeah. that. Um, I think that's a very, that's a struggle I can't really mm. understand, I think, as a British person. Yeah. I know it's very difficult to imagine that everything that's going on in this country at the moment, which is not insignificant, um, if you add the the kind of retraction of even more rights over there and add in the guns on top of that, it's just, it is it is quite overwhelming what, what they're dealing with. Um, but the book as well, um, let's talk about your mother for a minute, because the book is also partly her story. Um, oh my goodness. Like what an incredible woman. It was so beautiful to read about her and also to read about a daughter writing about a single mother the way you do. Sorry, I got a little bit emotional reading it. It was such a beautiful, a beautiful ode to your mother and everything she did for you. Um, but so I guess I wanted to ask her, I want to ask you about her story. Um, first of all, about, um, about writing her story. Um, you talk about, um, your mother, I guess, experiencing 
this social whiplash, which I thought was such a great expression. You know, she had, she was raised by a single mother herself. Um, she went off to university. Everything, everything changed for her. That point where she went to America, she was so full of hope. She had loads of opportunities to come, but then um, became a single mother herself. Um, had to make some really, really difficult choices um, in order to raise you and your brother. Um, you write, I have only ever seen the women in my life make sacrifices, not the men. And I guess I wanted to ask you about, first of all, making the decision to write about your mother's experience and what that conversation was like between the two of you. Um, and then how you got it into onto the page in a way that you felt did her story justice. Yeah, well, um, it's so nice. Thank you for asking me about my mum, because the book is kind of a love letter to her. And I think that was a big, there was a story in it. And to me, there's a political story in it and a feminist story in it. But it's also just a story of total admiration and um, a story I thought I just had to tell. So, I, um, it, you know, in terms of her, I'd written about her a lot in my journalism um, and much more from a kind of when the internet loved angry 800 word opinion pieces um uh that was my currency and I was a, a champion of her as a single mother and it, that's sort of how I began writing about her and really kind of I think also when I had a platform to write realizing that still there was this very strange ideas about who single mothers are and and all just a complete blank kind of refusal that they even exist you know um so I felt like I really wanted to try and and say this is well this is at least my experience of a single mother so that's when I began writing about her and she was always just completely moved I like when um I wrote about her for a piece in the uh Guardian family which doesn't exist anymore and she said to me I feel like Father Ted when he won that award and she was just so moved to begin with. So then writing a book about her felt quite, uh, in some ways it felt like, well, the next logical step. Um, but this was on a different level. And she is a private person. You know, she's a very private person. But she is also um, just incredibly generous to my brother and I. And she has always said, use it. That's what she'd say to me, use it. And there was lots I didn't use and I don't, you know, and that's something I'm interested in, in as a writer, sort of when your story overlaps with someone else, whose story is it? And her story is my story, but how do I tell it? Um, and, you know, actually when I was doing some press for the book and I wrote an, I wrote another piece for The Observer actually and... And this word I came across for the first time was trespassing. Like, had I trespassed, um, actually, um, she never, we tried to do one sit down interview and it was a disaster because she just got really weird and quiet. Mm. And uh, it was just very uncomfortable. And so I realized that the way that I was going to get what I needed was to just be normal. <laughs> and so just go home have a cup of tea, have a glass of wine and talk. And then the stories would come out. Or, you know, I'd text her and be like, what year was it that you did this? Or, you know, what, mm -hmm. what, you know, can you, and that would sort of open things. So the process had to be much more organic to get anything out of her. And to begin with, she didn't really see what I was trying to do. And I guess um, with the really personal bits about her life, she, you know, again, it was, it was, something that she was very generous with and I think she I knew that like there had to be a purpose to telling her story like there had to be not only sort of a narrative function but a much bigger purpose mm -hmm. of why I would tell her story um but I also truly believe that her story is worth telling and that's the bigger theme of the book that these women who are just ignored and overlooked have these remarkable lives um and display remarkable traits like resilience or perseverance and that's what I was trying to celebrate I didn't want anyone in the book who was already a name or who was already 
had a profile. I wasn't interested in those women. I was interested in the women we don't know and how extraordinary we are and how, how extraordinary it is that we are so dismissive of so many of these women. So um, writing about her was very personal, but it was definitely linked to this bigger idea. And um, she still doesn't say much. I mean, she's very sweet about the book. Um, and she, at a few events, people always say to her, you know, like, isn't it weird? And I, she didn't say it to me. She said it while she was talking to someone else. She said, well, I, yeah, I've, you know, I have cried a few times. Mm. She has, you know, there's, there's still quite a lot unsaid. Yeah. Um, and there's still a lot of her life, I know, for sure, right, which is unsaid. But it is it's a gift. Her permission to write about her is, I, I definitely saw it as a gift. Mm. I want to just um, mention something you write fairly early on in the book, Um for a long time, I felt that the stories of the men in my family weren't mine to tell, but isn't being a storyteller essentially a power grab and a situation in which you feel powerless? Isn't it that what women have always used their voices to do? And I thought this was so spot on. I've got a number of friends who have published and have not been able to write about things because they've been told by the legal teams of their publishers that what they're you know writing about is, is not allowed, even though it happened to them, even though it is their story. Um, it's a really, really difficult terrain to navigate um, as a life writer. Um, did you, a few of my friends have fallen back on the whole um, writing it in and taking it out. So essentially that it sort of almost leaves an echo or a shadow on the page somehow that the reader is able to read between the lines, but they don't overstep any kind of legal marks. Did you find at any point you had to kind of how did you approach some of those aspects? We don't have to go into detail about what they are, but some aspects of the book where um, where you tread into other people's stories. Yeah, well, that the the sentence you just read uh, preceded a big chunk that had to be taken out. Right. Um, yeah. Which is, as you say, that kind of lovely kind of phrase of a shadow on the page. Um. I was actually quite naive to privacy law mm. uh, when I started writing it. Um, and, you know, there's there's a lot more stories that can't be written. Um, and I, you know, I've always written publicly about myself in the first person, but always omitting great big chunks. So I learned how to write mm -hmm. in a way that seemed like I was telling you the story, yeah. but there were all these characters and events missing. Um, so I'd had good practice at that. Um, but I think it's hard. It's really hard when you're trying to do something authentically and you believe in the you believe, you know, as earnest as this sounds, you believe in the in the process and the kind of, you know, importance of of storytelling. And it's almost an urge. It's almost an instinct. It's something beyond your planning on a piece of paper that this story has to be told. And these are vital components to telling this story. And the reader will know that. You know, as you just said, you know when something's not being said, or you know when something is, you know. And so it was it was hard. And I think um it, it was hard. It was really hard. And then actually it became even harder, I think, with uh the references to my stepfather in the book. Um, because uh he was abusive, there was no criminal conviction. Mm. And so I wasn't allowed to use certain phrases mm. which was really hard it's really difficult isn't it especially if you're a witness and you know they happened like you know they happened because you were there but yeah it's um yeah, it's and it very... feels like a rule that I that particularly affects women because of course abuse um women experience abuse in private a lot of the time behind closed doors it, it's it really angered me I was angry for lots of reasons uh the publisher was very slow to kind of pointing this out to me but it, it it is just yet another way our legal and societal structures protect uh 
essentially aid and abet perpetrators. Mm. And it is another way women are silenced. We have a huge problem in this country with convictions of domestic abuse, yet we have an epidemic of, of domestic abusers. And so we know that <laughs> we know that all these men are doing this, but none of them get convicted. So nobody can write about it. Yeah. And the only women who you can write around it or about it tend to be dead or anonymous. Mm. Um, or the very few, ex- you know, the very kind of rare examples where they've had a conviction. And in which case, these poor women are rolled out over and over and over again to tell their trauma over and over again, because that's all we have. It is a, it is, it is completely problematic. Um, And I think, you know, for me, writing that was just a reinforcement of every way I've understood the dynamics of a perpetrator and a victim and how we treat both of those uh, figures in society. So I think um, writing about your family (laughs) and, and, you know, they were, that's the extremity of it. When I was sort of just, when I was out in uh, Michigan meeting my mum's aunt, my great aunt June, there were so many stories there. Yeah. But they're not mine to tell. But as a writer and a journalist, you know, it's sort of like sitting on your hands. Yeah. Believe these stories and you know they'd make them quick. But they're not yours, and so you yeah. you have to you have you know. And I believe quite you know the kind of journalism I do is often uh, interviewing um, victims of abuse, and I believe so much in respectful storytelling. I'm never going to be that journalist who tricks someone or digs and digs and digs and digs. I just that's not the stories I want to tell. And yeah. That's not the rapport I ever want to have with uh, someone I'm interviewing. But it means that you you know, you don't come away with the best stuff. Yeah. And so, yeah, the whole book is, um, is uh, probably has a lot of those uh, shadows on it and mm. was, I guess, reiterating a lot of the themes in the book. And I think, you know, um, the process of writing it was sort of was kind of the point I was trying to make in some mm. way. Um, but yes, and I and I think you basically you you wonder what kind of book you'd write if everyone was dead. I mean, Ian McEwan always says to write like everyone's dead, write like your parents are dead. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think there's probably a different meaning to you know potentially getting sued um yeah it's a tricky one and I think um I think you know my my having done it now I would probably my advice would be to just write it all out Mm. and take it away yeah I think um and then you piece then you can kind of piece together the bits that are left yeah yeah well let's talk about um, the writing of the book for a second. I am always really curious when I speak to nonfiction writers, particularly creative nonfiction, about what did this book look like when you sold it? What did the proposal of Wild Hope look like? And how, what did that book, what did you imagine that book was going to be? And how does it compare to to how it ended up? Um, the, the, it started really with the, with the bus journey in my head. Uh, that was, I just, that was the spine. And I just knew that if I, and it was during, I had the idea during the Kavanaugh hearings in 2018, mm. when everything felt so raw. Um, and I've always had this kind of love affair with America. So it was kind of like all these pieces that had been swimming around in my head suddenly stuck together around this bus journey, but there was still quite a lot of work to do to get from what was in my head onto a page because there are so many components to it mm. and trying to it's not a simple sell I haven't got my elevator pitch you know there's a lot going in and I wanted to do that but that made it quite a long proposal mm. um and to be honest you know cynically you know I knew that publisher, publishers would be more interested in a mother and daughter 
story. So you kind of push that up to the front. But I'm, I'm, I would love to just wander around. I just love to ride greyhounds for like a year and meet people and write their stories. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I had to fight to keep that stuff in the book with my editor. Um, so I think you always write a proposal trying to sell a book as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that, that was the, that was the big thing. And, um, when I sold it, you know, it was 2018, 19, the Me Too movement felt very, uh, kind of, um, relevant. Trump was in the White House. So that helped a lot, I think. Um, in terms of, of it feeling relevant. But I did always have this kind of quite visual idea in my head, but it took a long, it took a good few steps to untangle it mm. and really understand what it was I was trying to do. And actually having the kind of linear structure with just the each state was the best, the clearest way I could then sort of pour all these ideas into. Mm. I still allow it to feel like it made some sense because <laughs> that was my worry. My biggest worry was that I'd just written a bunch of unrelated thoughts about stuff and 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 moved and moved kind of you know halfway across America. Um, and so the weaving of it together was uh, was the real challenge. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and sort of trying to explain to other people what I was doing, you know, interviewing these women, being like, yeah, I'm really interested in what you're doing. And what's the book about? Well, it's kind of about you, but it's also kind of about my mom. And I'm on a Greyhound bus. And, you know, it was, it, it actually took me a while to, I mean, I had a 20,000 word proposal, but it was a long way after that, that I think I probably really knew what I was doing. Yeah. And in the in the meantime as well, because the pandemic happened between when you sold the book and when you were able to make that journey. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was wild because uh, three weeks before I was due to fly out, Trump uh, put the flight ban in place. So then there was the pandemic, and to begin with, the publisher was was very understanding. But it's I mean, that- there was literally nothing you could do about it, was there? No. And there was like at one point, my mom was like, "Can't you just do it on Zoom?" And I was like. No, no, no. Can't just do it on Zoom. <laughs> um, and th- and then it just became kind of I was feeling more and more pressure to like, well, you know, um, something's got to happen. Um, but I don't know if you, if you remember, but Biden was was quite strict. By the time Biden was elected, he was still quite strict about uh, Europeans going into the states. So I, so, I mean, it's it's absurd. Um, I, to get into the states, I had to kind of launder myself uh, somewhere else. Yeah, um, and I spent two, fourteen nights, fifteen nights in, in Barbados on my own. <laughs> and oh, uh, my goodness! And I was in this very strange, all-inclusive, but I didn't have the all-inclusive. But I went there because they the rooms were like little apartments. Yeah, so I knew you that stay I, away from everybody. Stay yeah. away from everyone. Have a kitchen. Have a desk. And I'd work all morning up to about three or four o'clock. And then I'd go to the beach or I'd sit by the pool. And uh, I, and I kind of loved it. I like being on my own a lot. Yeah. Traveling what, like a kind of an incredible writer's retreat, really. Kind of an amazing writer's retreat. The first week particularly was amazing because there was nobody there. A few other people doing what I was doing, trying to get into the state. Oh, interesting. Um but nobody around and the staff all knew you because you were there all the time. And it was kind of amazing. I kind of settled into my routine and, you know, it was, it was wonderful. Um, and then the second week, like low, you kind of loads of tourists arrived and there were lots of uh, St. George's flag towel. Ooh. Uh, 11 a.m. Yeah. And I was like, okay, this is not quite. <laughs> the writer's retreat but it was it was an experience I mean it was a it was I love being I love ending up somewhere I never thought I would mm. that was that was definitely and I'd have this like a tiny bit every day at like 5 30 and watch the sunset I'd just be like this is so weird <laughs> like this is so weird again another weird day in paradise but <laughs> here I am and then so then I could fly from uh into 
New York. And that was amazing because I actually ended up flying in on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And that was just so sort of moving. And uh, yeah, and then it began. So the whole thing, the whole process has felt like a really long time. And of course, like there was a different president. Mm. You know, the landscape was different. Um, But of course, true to life, it was just... it was different, just not in the way I could have predicted. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, of course, the world watched in horror of Jan 6th. And that really was, that felt like an amazing time. I mean, mm. it's terrible. There is that problem as a writer where things are awful for the world, but they're great material for you. And it kind of, this book felt like <laughs> it profited from, it profited from such a terrible thing. But it, it was fascinating to see this country having such a long hard look at itself yeah in the aftermath of that and I think for me I think what was fascinating about that and I really loved the reflections on that I found that really fascinating in the book particularly because the reflections came from such a diverse group of women and um I wanted to ask you about that because the the women you speak to are incredibly diverse in terms of um their activism there is one day in New York where in the morning you're speaking to a trans woman who is completely on the outside and is um is handing out feminist zines and has always and has been an activist for her entire life and remains very staunchly on the outside and then that afternoon you go and see someone who is a a republican who um who was very much a feminist from inside the system um and obviously that the huge wealth disparity that comes with that. Um, but that continues throughout your journey of the kind of different women you're speaking to. Um, how did you piece together the voices that you wanted to include? I mean, that I mean, as you're saying, you spoke to a tiny fraction of the, of the women doing this work in America. How did you begin to piece that together? I mean, some of it is out of your control, as in who will speak to you. Mm. You know, um, that's that's your kind of first uh your first kind of boundary is like, well, who will actually, who's going to say yes? Um, I think really it was the women I, I wanted women doing a range of things. Um, I wanted a range of ages. Mm. Um, and I wanted, um, I wanted women who I felt were really doing the work. You know, I wasn't looking on Instagram for these people. I, um, I, that was the big criteria for me. Mm-hmm. So, um, so for example, the trans woman you mentioned, you know, she'd been in federal prison twice for activism. I mean, it's, it's the commitment, mm-hmm. uh, which was what, and they all, they all showed a commitment. <laughs> all of them prepared to get arrested and fair enough, but they all showed a commitment to a cause that was bigger than themselves without the fanfare of letting people know Mm. um so that was the kind of uh i think that was the driving force um and definitely wanting to just find a range of voices in terms of under you know in terms of being hugely aware that a i'm not american and b i'm white and i'm privileged and all of those things and so wanting to know what this story is for the people who are living it mm-hmm. um so yeah that that but it a lot of it was just a lot of reaching out to people mm-hmm. and they sort of be interested and then they wouldn't um and so the final cut was sort of a little bit down to fate you know yeah uh, and I had other conversations with other women who didn't make it into the book um and I had conversations with women who were never going to make it into the book but were kind of off the record conversations you know and so the the ones who made it in um I think and I think you know cynically I guess you you are looking even in non-fiction you are looking at these voices as characters Mm. that's not to take away the reality of their existence or their experience one minute but, but you they are, are part of the narrative of this. They are this exactly, yeah. and you're always yeah. thinking about the reader. Mm. And so, I think I was always looking for someone who not only had done something amazing, but could probably tell me, or could, you know, or, or just have that extra thing. Mm. Um, and they all felt like that to me. They all felt kind, kind of incredible. Every, every time I walked out of a meeting with any of them, I was sort of just awestruck. And so, 
that was the thing. But um, but you know, having said that, I think you could go and find 20, 60, 100, more of them. You know, America's so big yeah. and there are so many women doing so many amazing things. And that was just in the States that I was in on the, I mean, that was the other thing. There was an itinerary, right? I was yeah. going. And they had to be able to meet you when you were there. These, yeah. Like um, most I was there, like, I think the longest I was in any one place was four or five days. Mm. Mostly it was two days. And so they had to meet me. So exactly. Yeah. So there was this sort of like, well, who's here? Um, and, you know, I think I got very lucky with who was there. There is an extraordinary moment where somebody puts you in touch with Phyllis Schlafly's daughter, a granddaughter, which was, and it was one of those moments I was reading it just going, oh, it's just that idea of like, you really can't control necessarily what's going to happen when you're, when you're, when you're writing from life in this way. And that was such a really incredible moment, um, particularly because of, of the extreme contradictions in that woman in terms of, you know, like, as you mentioned in the book, like Thatcher, um, sort of condemned working mothers, but they were themselves working mothers and very, very successful ones. <laughs> and then you can see that contradiction in her granddaughter of, of kind of loving and respecting the grandmother, but not really giving giving you um, any anything. kind of indication about <laughs> whether she agrees with her politics yeah. in any way, anything. which yeah. on its own is just fascinating in yeah. itself. It was. It felt... I really felt the woman who introduced me uh, was amazing, but and seemed to know everyone in the in the city I was in, and um, and I was amazed Sarah Shapley did it. But I think there was some sort of family PR work right. because they'd been so unhappy with the Kate Blanchard BBC Two yeah story of the life and that they hadn't the family hadn't been consulted in any way mm. they thought it was very interesting on behalf of the uh filmmakers like you know uh even even, even not for the truth but just to hear what the family said yeah just to hear that really yeah they did. but um so I think there was a kind of I think her motives for speaking to me was sort of like kind of family firm PR thing yeah and she was so nice and so like, yeah, sure, I'm free next Tuesday. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes, and I think actually I wasn't, I didn't want to, you know, lots of people said to me when I was writing the book, oh, you're gonna have, you know, pro-abortion people and anti-abortion people. And I was like, it's not that kind of book. I'm not here to persuade anyone. Yeah. I'm not here to, I'm not here to give a balanced view because it's not that book, you know, and I don't um as in, I don't, I'm not going to, to give the space to anti-abortionists because mm. I don't, they can have other spaces and I have space in my book. So I wasn't looking for like a kind of, well, this is a, this is what the other side think. But actually, when you got closer to the other side, so to speak, that's where things got a bit more interesting. Mm. Like Really yeah, interesting. Yeah. Susan Coleman. And then like to, to, and actually to get to Shafley, I mean, it was, that was what was amazing about the process of taking this journey where I was kind of in the dark, like, oh, I'll go to this city in this state and then I'll go here because along the way I'd met Mike Pence's best friend, which was just so wild. No, just completely (laughs) wild. The owner of the B&B I was in, and there was just pictures of Mike Pence everywhere with him. (laughs) And so then by the time I'm in uh, St. Louis, and then then I meet a Shafley, which really in the story of what I'm telling, which is the kind of a very abbreviated version of the women's lib movement, Shafley is undoubtedly Mm -hmm. such an important figure. Yeah. Um, and so that was remarkable, you know, and then and also along the way, I'd met one of Michelle Obama's good friends. And that was so, yeah. that was so accidental. Um, but I think maybe that's the way the universe works, you know, <laughs> when you're not looking for things, they kind of show up. But yeah, Sarah Shafley was very interesting. And I think she, a lot was unsaid. And I think it's an interesting thing that we can all relate to is that what if you were brought up with a kind and loving grandmother who is nothing but wonderful to you and your family and then like she did it wasn't until she got to college where she until she had any idea what Shafi was saying yeah um, so I think it was remarkable and I and I and I was very gen I, I was very kind I thought she was very generous to talk to me um but 
I think, you know, that that dilemma in itself was almost, again, really fitted well with what I was trying to say. Who are the women before us? And how do they make us who we are? And and who are off and you know, and that applies, I guess, if you think in more terms of activism and community, but also our families. Mm. And I think, you know, who doesn't have family secrets and who doesn't have family members who are problematic? Um, and Shafley was sort of phenomenal. I mean, she wrote countless books, I yeah. forget, countless, countless, you know, and on her deathbed, three days before she died, she told Sarah she still had three books to write. Mm. Um, so she was a remarkable. She- a remarkable woman. I think this is really what's so fascinating, isn't it? Is that um, this idea of her and women like Thatcher who were, um, they were saying something very different to what they were doing themselves. Yes. And I think sense. it's important to say what they were saying was awful. I mean, yes. what she was saying was awful. Uh, and, she and she's pretty much, I mean, I think, you know, it's fairly universally agreed that she really set women's rights back. Single-handedly. Single-handedly. Yeah. point the finger at her about the yeah. Equal Rights Amendment in the States, mm. and you can literally say it's her fault. Yeah. That's had repercussions mm. ever since, and they are still fighting for it. Yeah. And she, she turned the tide, yeah. and she was exceptionally important to get Reagan elected. Mm. She was such a force. Um, and you know, again, I think she's not as well known, probably because she's a woman, you know, in, in this country. Yeah, she accept. Um, yeah, she was a phenomenal political operator. Yeah, understood how to create, you know, fear and bringing together people via fear and using that fear for political gain. Mm. And she did it all under the guise of like, women just need to be at home baking. Mm. Um, and then, in, no, you don't have to, no, no, you shouldn't be sent to Vietnam. You know, like it was, she was, she was remarkable. And I think um, she, one of the things, you know, I think when we talk about women's rights, is it's very tempting to paint this sort of story that it's, uh, I guess that it goes right back to the beginning question about hope that everything gallops forwards and it's all positive and it's all women coming together and, you know, sisterhood. And actually one of the biggest architects of, of restricting women's rights was a woman. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's so important to remember that and think about that and, mm-hmm. uh, and acknowledge that. But yeah, I think in uh, the Shafley name is by all accounts still kind of very, uh, highly regarded in that area mm. but um yes it did feel amazing to meet her and and I think you know for Americans it's very different if you say Shafley to Americans mm. it's like saying Thatcher to us mm. uh so yeah that 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 felt like I'd really got close to a piece of history actually mm. um I wanted to ask you about writing about women your newsletter which I've been um receiving for quite a long time now it's a really oh, really beautiful nice. newsletter um <laughs> it's on Substack now I'm going to put the link in the show notes everybody please do sign up it's absolutely brilliant but I wanted to talk to you about something that you wrote about in the summer since you wrote Wild Hope you've become a parent yourself and you I was really interested in the summer you were writing about um about your the shared parental leave that your partner was able to take and you had all these intentions for it and you had all these in, good intentions of writing all day and doing some yoga and uh, and that it didn't actually quite work out that way. Surprise! And, and a surprise, surprise. But um, but it was it was interesting. You talk about this idea of this constant interruption and how you were learning that this was actually just how it was now, and you were trying to kind of integrate it, that into your idea of what working looked like now. And I guess I wanted to um, ask you about that and how how you feel if any if any of what you went into writing Wild Hope, um, if anything has changed for you, if if you feel stronger about certain things now that you've become a parent, um, or maybe nothing has changed at all. But um, I'm just really curious because I, I remember that shift that happened to me. And I think um, I think I, I was already very kind of probably in some ways more kind of 
more staunchly feminist than some of my friends when I was younger, partly I think because of what things that my mum had gone through and partly because I'd done some work in an NGO, which was specifically around women and girls. And I'd done some gender studies as well in my film school. So um, I went in thinking that I, I knowing and saying out loud that I was a feminist, but something changed for me when I became a parent. And it was partly my behavior that I saw um, when I first became pregnant. I was a, I was a photographer for many years. I hid my pregnancy from clients because I just instinctively knew that it was going to work against me. Um, for years, whenever I couldn't do a job because I didn't have childcare, I lied and said I was booked with somebody else. And I hid that. Um, it's something I've actively stopped doing now because I sort of feel like it's my responsibility as a working mother to help other women who are coming up behind me to understand that, be like, no, I don't do that on Mondays because I don't have after school childcare on Mondays. And no, I'm not going to do that this week because it's a school holiday this week. And so I can't. And I'm very vocal about it now, but it took me a really long time to be able to say those words. I didn't feel like it was safe for me to say those words in the past, that I would lose all my income. And so I guess I just wanted to ask you about how that shift has worked for you. And I know that's a big question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I really saw it with my mum in terms of how she would never be able to, if we were sick, she would have to call in and say she was sick. Mm. As if she was staying at home for her kids, it would be proof that she couldn't do the job, which meant she could never get sick because she'd used all her sick days mm. on us. And so I definitely grew up watching her work in an environment that basically challenged her all the time because she was a mother. Mm. Whereas I work in a very different space. I'm a freelance. Um, <clears throat> I um, don't have that uh, that same level of pressure. However, you know, I have. And I do think things have changed. So, for example, I turned down my, I had to turn down my third commission from the same commissioning editor recently. And I was like, shit, they're just going to stop commissioning me because mm. I can't turn something around now in a day and a half finding three case studies. And, you know, I can't do that anymore uh, or at the moment. And um, I sent her a very honest email saying, I'm really, I don't want you to think I'm passing on this, but I, you know, and she sent back a very kind email saying, well, we'll figure something out. So I felt very, very lucky in that regard. But, um, I mean, it, in the shift, I mean, it's just, I don't think I've even understood the shift yet. You know, my son is one at the end of this month. I still, I've, I'm like, I'm doing two and a half days at the moment, which is nothing. You know, you you start on something and then then it two and a half days are over mm -hmm. um and I was someone who's you know my career was everything nothing was more important than my career and writing and now they're just there's this thing that doesn't care that you're writing <laughs> um and it's and it's a real shock um if so, at the moment, I, I feel quite lost at sea, actually, to be honest, about how I'm going to move forward. Um, I think that's partly because, actually, as a journalist, the the industry is pretty bleak as well. Mm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, at the moment, I look at people with the type of job that you could just slot back into. And I'm not saying that's easy and it comes with all of its own challenges, but I look at people who, like a friend of my and my NCT is a doctor. So she will go back to work and there will be work. Whereas I am now at that, you know, as freelance, the biggest part of freelance is finding work. Yeah. But I haven't been finding work for over a year. And I was like, where do I look? And like the momentum's gone. So you have to build up the momentum again. You've got, but you've got no steam because you didn't sleep last night. Mm. And you've got no confidence because you've been out of the game for ages. And you're like, well, I don't know what's happening. So that's that shift is is a big old uh mess at the moment. The other shift though is is um everything and I you know I, I'm really careful I try to be really careful about how I talk about this because I don't want to ever insinuate that you know being a mother is some sort of like special filter onto the earth and if you don't if you're not a mother you can't see the world in this way mm -hmm. 
They don't believe that. But it's just like somebody turning the dials up on everything, on everything, on the good and the bad. And my rage about people thinking they can decide whether or not a woman keeps her pregnancy or terminates her pregnancy is fiercer than ever. Mm. The idea now to me that you would force someone through labor, Mm. especially a child, which is what's happening in in the States and elsewhere Mm. in the world, I'm more aghast. I'm more angry. Um, I feel more pressure to be better for my son. Yeah. I feel, you know, my partner's always sort of like calling the feminist card on me. Like if I try and sneak out of doing something around the house, <laughs> maybe it's a bit heavy. He's like, oh, you know, and, and now he kind of says to me, instead before he was like, well, what kind of feminist are you? Now he's like, well, is your son going to grow up <laughs> seeing your mother not able to do things? You know, like, so there is this kind of, I want, I've got this determination now to do something for someone else, which is actually, I have found more motivating than doing it yeah. for me. Um, I think, you know, you want, you realize as well that you have a track record now. So when my son is a teenager, he will look back and be like, well, what did you do about this issue? Or how were you living during this time? Or what were you involved with? And so suddenly you've got like somebody's watching you, even though they're not Mm -hmm. watching you, you're now accountable in your life to someone in a, in a way. And and those things, I think, you know, I feel um, very acu- kind of acutely aware of. It's like I, you know, I'm so proud of my mother and everything she is and has done. And I just think, God, how on earth will I ever make him that proud of me? Mm. And um, some of that is through adversity. You know, I think if you have been a single parent family and certain things have happened, they pull you together in a way. That is very special, but you can't get there necessarily without these terrible things happening. Mm. Um, and I don't want terrible things to happen to my son. So yeah. there's kind of, you know, strange, strange friction in that, you know, um, that will we ever be as close as me and my mom? Probably not, but maybe that's for a good reason. Um, but we'll just be close in a different way, I hope. Um, so it's just everything, isn't it? And it's, yeah. And it's ongoing, I think. I'm sure you, I mean, would you, I, maybe you agree, but I, as the child changes, surely that dynamic then changes and yeah. you're changing. And um, yeah, I haven't got to grips, but in terms of my feminism, um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, no doubt about it. And I, and I think the fear I have uh, is bringing up a, a, a son where you know men like uh, Andrew Tate mm. are so influential and um the internet and all that all of that kind of stuff yeah so it's a lot and sometimes you're so overwhelmed and then the, the next day you're like well I've had two hours sleep so I can't think about this <laughs> <laughs> I know I have got quite a lot better at compartmentalizing since becoming a parent because there's almost like the variety of different things I deal with as a parent I can't necessarily deal with them all at the same time as I'm interviewing someone else or, um, you know, working on a book or, you know, doing my taxes or, you know, um, it's like you have to sometimes just park things. But it's interesting because um, I think I agree. I just becoming a parent just made me double down on my pro-abortion stance. I mean, it it did because imagine, you know, I, I chose to be a parent and it's been just the most unbelievably challenging ride, mostly because of the times we're living in, um, but also because of some other aspects of my family. But um, but that just makes me more more staunchly kind of in my belief that women should choose to go into this and not be forced to. Um, yeah, yeah. It, the, one of the one of the be- one of the most interesting conversations I had in the, in and the book was about reproductive justice and really understanding mm. justice as opposed to reproductive rights or abortion yeah. health care. And 
you know, reproductive justice is primarily a conversation for Black women, women of colour. Um, and it it entails taking in the entire social, economic, political landscape of a woman's life and saying, do you have, are you empowered to have the life you want? Mm-hmm. And I think the idea that a lawmaker with a political agenda thinks they can um, interfere and determine Mm. life. It just blows my mind. I mean, the really outrageous thing in the States, of course, is that actually the majority of polls have done consistently for 30 years shown that most people (laughs) agree with some level of abortion access. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with gun control. Uh, They have this terrible situation with the legislator blocking essentially the will of the people and and it will kill women it is killing women Mm. Um, but yes I think um absolutely I feel more strongly about uh women's rights than ever and I think I just you know you look at you look at young women and or women of any age forced to carry a baby to term that they do not want but then you look at women who desperately want a baby and are pregnant and then they something desperately tragic has happened to that baby's health and they have to carry that baby to town mm-hmm. yeah the cruel the cruelty mm-hmm. the disregard of the cruelty either way it astounds me mm-hmm. and i think um you know i had an interesting conversation with someone the other day about how problematic it was that really in the 90s the Clintons turned, tried to, t- to kind of ameliorate the conversation around abortion and soften it. They tried and to make it more, to make Democrats more electable, they tried to turn it into a kind of healthcare issue. Mm. And in some regards, you know, initially before it was politicized in the late 70s, it was just seen as an issue between a woman and a doctor. But it's so much more than a healthcare issue. Mm. It's a fundamental human right issue. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's the, you know, Biden still is uncomfortable with even saying the word abortion, even while, you know, he's doing so terribly in the polls at the same time as the Democrats are winning because of abortion. You know, I'm not even American, but it drives me wild. Mm. I can't imagine what it must be like. Um, But, yeah, I think... um, I think society looks at a pregnant woman and they see a baby. I think when you've been a pregnant woman, you see a baby, but you also see a woman. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, uh, you know, that's the thing. Yeah. And something that we cannot absolutely be complacent about in this country for so many reasons, not least because recently there have been prosecutions against women um, for uh, late-term abortions, but like criminal prosecutions, and also now investigations apparently into um, invasive blood tests to see whether yeah. women have taken anything when they've Amazing. miscarried. Yeah, Amazing. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's really shocking. Really frightening. And I think, you know, although it seems that like the Dobbs, um, you know, and the repeal of Roe is kind of sort of backfiring politically for the Republicans, it will have emboldened them into mm-hmm. to a degree. And these people have money and it goes everywhere and they will be here. There will be American money fueling anti-abortion protests outside clinics in this country. And, you know, this country voted for um, buffer zones around clinics nationally, but loads of them have not been um, put into place. And the issue gets really sidelined. But as you say, it's something you cannot be complacent about. And we don't think, you know, we, you know, people kind of scoff and sort of, roll their eyes like oh it's not a problem here which is exactly what people did have said about Roe like they'll never get to Roe they did and the day after Roe in this country a Tory MP stood up in the Houses of Commons and said perhaps women's bodily autonomy should be up for political debate mm-hmm. like if there's a window of, of opportunity they will take it and I yeah. think it's not over dramatic or um hysterical <laughs> to suggests that we need to be alert Mm. um absolutely um you know i think if you i think 
when you watch the unthinkable happen. It's a bit like Brexit. Yeah. And then being surprised Trump was elected. It's like, well, we've just watched the unthinkable happen. So why wouldn't it happen again? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Marisa, thank you so much for being with me and talking with me. Wild Hope is just so extraordinary. Um, please, everybody, go out and read it. It is absolutely extraordinary. It's um, it's also an incredible travel memoir, um, which we didn't even go into. Um, the most beautiful stories come out of that Greyhound bus. Um, I have been on a couple of those buses. They are wild. <laughs> Um, so do please, um, everybody go off and read it. It is brilliant. It really reminded me of the work of writers like Barbara Ehrenreich. Um, so for anyone who is fans of that style of work, I think it's just beautiful. Um, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much. Honestly, I really, really appreciate it. It's, um, a real privilege. Thank you. Thank you.